Let me ask you a question to think about. When is a time in your life that you have felt most honored? When's the time you felt honored? I was uh, thinking about this this week, and I think partly because my love language are, is words of affirmation. I feel honored when people take the time to either write me a note or to say something uh, significant to me. In fact, just this last week, someone in our church family wrote a really meaningful note to me, and that honored me. It made me feel honored. I don't know what it is for you. It's probably different. In the original Hebrew, the word honor means literally to be heavy. Isn't that interesting? So when you honor someone, it means you are treating them as a heavyweight in your life. Someone of extreme importance, someone of great significance, someone who is huge. When the Ten Commandments say, honor your mother and father, it's not just saying obey them. It's saying treat them with respect. Treat them with significance. Treat them like they mean something to you. Well, this morning, as a church family, the question I really want to ask, if you're following on your notes there, is how do we really honor God with our lives? How do we honor God? How does God feel honored? When does God feel honored? How do we treat him with the significance he deserves as a heavyweight, both as individuals, but more specifically, how do we do that together as a church family? And the reason I want to talk about doing that together is because if you haven't been with us, we are in the middle of a series called Family Values, where we are looking at our church's nine values. We want to pursue these nine things together as a church family. If you come to Cherry Hills, this is what we want to be about. And so I want to talk about, you know, how do we honor God? As a church family, how can we be more intentional about this? And to describe that, I want to talk actually this morning about two of our values in one message. I thought originally this was a good idea. Uh, I'm not so sure anymore. Actually, I am sure. It was my idea to do these two in one message because I believe they belong together. And the two are authenticity and excellence. In fact, before we go any farther, can we just read what those are on the back of your notes? They should be printed there, right? So let's read those out loud. The first one is, we value authenticity. Go. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, we seek to humbly and transparently represent Christ in all we do and say. Now read the one right below it. It says, we value excellence. Because God gave his best for us, we seek to give him our best. For excellence honors God and inspires people. Listen, the reason I wanted to do both of these together this morning is because if we really want to learn what it means to honor God with our lives, we have to have both. In other words, I'll give you the conclusion of the message right here in the introduction. If you're following, we honor God by valuing both authenticity and excellence. They go together. They go together. In fact, the passage we're going to look at this morning in Malachi chapter 1, we are told God feels honored. When we value these two things and we bring them to him in worship. Sadly, we're going to see in Malachi that's exactly what the people were not doing. But we want to avoid that mistake as a church family, don't we? We want to be a church that honors God. So that's what we're going to be looking at together this morning. Before, though, I look at Malachi 1. It's important that we really define what we mean by the words authenticity and excellence. So let's take a little bit of time to dig into these. Let's first talk about authenticity. Authenticity is one of those in words right now. It's a buzzword, right? Everybody wants to be authentic. The problem is authenticity is kind of a slippery word to define. What's weird, though, is we all know it when we see it. 
We all know we have these little radars, I think, that go off, right? When we meet someone, we know within seconds sometimes whether this person is authentic or inauthentic. So I was having a hard time. Like, how do I describe exactly what this word is until it dawned on me what the opposite of authentic is? What, what would you say the opposite of authentic is? Fake. The word the Bible might use is hypocrisy, right? The opposite of authentic is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when somebody says one thing, but we know they're living a different way. In Greek, the Greek language, which the New Testament was written, the word hypocrisy literally comes from a word that means play-acting, actors putting on a mask. Isn't that interesting? Hypocrisy is play-acting. It's faking it. In growing up in California, the word we used was poser. All right? Like that was the ultimate insult to be called a poser. You're a fake. You're not really who you say you are. You are inauthentic. Authenticity is the opposite of that. In fact, very interesting, last week, the word Paul used to describe authenticity, if you were here, Jeff was talking about how do we have right relationships with one another, and the very beginning of that passage in Romans chapter 12, 9, he, Paul writes this, love must be sincere. That's the word for authentic. In, it's actually two words in Latin that mean without wax, and there's actually kind of an interesting story behind the word sincere. You see, there were potters in that day who would make pottery, right? And sometimes the pottery would crack. And an insincere potter, a, a hypocrite, would cover those cracks with wax and then try to sell the pots as if they were without wax, sincere. It, it was the real, uh, the real uh, in, people with integrity who would make pots, and if they had wax, they would say so. And if they didn't, they would write on their pots, sincere, without wax wax. Paul is saying in Romans 12 that our love must be without wax. It must be sincere when we hold it up. No no faking, no posing. We are who we are. We are who we are. We are who we say we are. So if you're following on your notes, a a definition of authenticity is someone who is sincere. What you see is what you get. What you see is what you get. It's the opposite of a hypocrite or a poser. Now, i got to tell you, if you forced me to pick just one value for our church, one value for my life, like if I could just pick one, this is the one I would pick. This is the one I would pick. You see, if, if I'm going to go to war on shallow Christianity, which I know exists inside of me, with, I want to go to war with people who aren't faking it, people who aren't posing, people who are genuine, people who are, here's another word for it, humble. Humble, Right? I want to go to war with people who can admit that living the Christian life isn't always roses. It can be difficult. It can be challenging, and yet it is the best life there is. I want to surround myself with people who are honest, sincere, without wax, humble. Because when those kind of characteristics are flowing in a church, that is when God can do great things. Scripture is very clear. God opposes the proud. He opposes inauthenticity, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to those who pursue humility and authenticity in their lives, and that's why we have it as a value of our church. We want to be known as people who are real, not people who pose. I mean, my dream would be when people think of Cherry Hills outside in this community, they would know us as authentic 
Authentic followers of Jesus Christ, not saying one thing when we gather here on Sunday mornings and then living differently throughout the week. You see, the sad reality is, though, the outside world, when it thinks of Christians, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, what they say they see is what? Hypocrisy. And so we want to be a church that values sincerity, authenticity, humility. So we value that. But listen, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't also do things well or with excellence, right? I know there are people uh, in our church and other churches who don't believe the word excellence and church belong together, right? I mean, we're just church. It's just the church. Can't we just relax a little bit? Why do we have to be so excellent? I mean, why does that have to be a value of ours, as, both as Christians but also as a church family? Well, to answer that, I want to tell you a story about a pastor who was asked that very same question on a visit that he made to New Zealand to give a conference there. The people in New Zealand there, the pastors there, couldn't believe how excellent they wanted everything to be at this conference. And at this question and answer time, one of the pastors finally was like, listen, aren't you taking this a little seriously? It's just church after all. Why does it have to be so excellent? Can't you just relax? And instead of answering straight up, he he told him a story. He says, you know, I got here a day early because I really wanted to go down to the harbor, which I did yesterday. And I watched the sailing team of the New Zealand sailing team go about their work. And if you know anything about sailing, I'm sure not many of you do, but New Zealand, tiny country, are known to be the best sailors in the world. And so he said, I watched these sailors. And they were trying to shave nanoseconds off their time by uh, learning the best tricks, doing the best thing. They were excellent in everything they did. So you can't tell me that excellence isn't a value that doesn't exist in your country. This is how he begins answering this pastor. And he went on to say these words, Why don't we bring that same devotion to church work where the stakes are infinitely higher because human lives can be transformed for all eternity? Should we not apply this God-given capacity for excellence to the most significant endeavor on the planet, which is building local churches? If, it, if I boil it down, I think a lot of people push back on the word excellence because you know what they hear? Perfectionism. Right? I mean, maybe you grew up with parents you could never please or a teacher who just always expected more out of you. And so excellence is equated with this idea of perfectionism. But excellence is not perfection. In fact, if you're following on your notes, I said that. Excellence is not perfection. It is doing the best you can with what you have. That should be a freeing idea. Right? That means there doesn't have to be competition. We don't have to be perfect We simply honestly assess my gifts, my resources. I don't look at what the church down the street's doing. We don't. We look at our church, and we say, how can we give God the best of who we are as an individual? How can I give God the best of who I am, not what my neighbor's giving, what I'm giving? That's why I wrote Colossians 3.23 on your notes there. Can we read that out loud? It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Not whatever your spouse does, not whatever your friend does, not whatever the street next door does, whatever you do. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Be excellent in all that you do. We serve a God who has only ever given us his absolute best, amen? In the beginning, God created the whole world. He sat back, looked at it, and said, this is awesome. This is excellent. This is very good. And it even got better. He sent his perfect son. 
How can we give him anything less? We will see in Malachi 1 that it honors God when we bring him our best. And again, it's one of our values. That's why. So speaking of Malachi, we've defined authenticity and excellence. It's time for us to turn to this passage of Scripture. If you haven't already, we're looking at Malachi chapter 1 starting in verse 6. And we're going to examine a group of people who weren't having these two things of value in their life. And how that dishonored God. Malachi is the very last book in the Old Testament if you're just getting used to where things are in your Bible. So if you get to Matthew, you've gone just a little too far, start turning to the left, and you'll find Malachi. If you didn't bring a Bible, we always have Bibles in the seat in front of you there, the seat back. You can find Malachi 1 on page 669. Now, before we actually get into the text, it's important to set a little bit of context. And I'll say this every once in a while, even in your own Bible studies. Listen, if you're at home and you're reading the Bible, it's important for you to understand context of a passage, right? you got to understand what came before this passage, what came after this passage. If I fully want to understand what the, this passage of Scripture is saying, I've got to understand the context. So let's understand a little context here. Malachi was a prophet around 433 B.C. in Israel. About 100 years before he arrives on the scene, this is important, about 539 B.C., there's this Persian king. His name is Cyrus. He was prophesied much about. And this king decides after 70 years of the people being in exile in Babylon, it's time for them to go home. So Cyrus lets the people of Israel go back home. They go back and guess what they find? Ruins. Everything's demolished. The temple is in shambles. But you know what? That's okay. Because there's a lot of enthusiasm at first. I mean, they've just been set free. They get to go back home, rebuild their lives. God even sends them a couple of motivational preachers to get them all revved up. Their names were Haggai and Zechariah. And in 516 B.C., they rebuild the temple. It's a wonderful day. It's a great day of celebration. In fact, they believe, the people of Israel believe, this is going to kind of usher in the next golden age. For the people of Israel, right? I mean, the golden age was during King David's reign, but this is going to be the next one. Good times are going to roll. Prosperity is coming, and yet, that's not happening. In fact, Jerusalem is still a desolate place. People are starving. Crops are failing. And they begin worshiping other gods again. So God lets this drag on for about 50, 60 years, and then he decides, you know what? It's time to send a couple more preachers to rev people up. So in 458 B.C., he sends a priest by the name of Ezra. Have you heard of him? Ten years later, he sends a, a leader, a governor by the name of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a great leader. He sets to having the people build the, the walls of the city of Jerusalem again, and you can read about it in the book named after him. But he has to step away for a time, and when he steps away, momentum is killed. Nehemiah is a great book about the importance of godly leadership. As soon as the leader leaves, the people just let it fall back into shambles. It's amazing. So it's 433 B.C. now, and in steps another spokesperson. His name is Malachi, and Malachi bursts on the scene. He starts preaching right away, and his very first message, which we're not reading, is Malachi 1, 1 through 5. Do you know what the message is all about, though? You know what God wants to say most to his people? I love you. I love you. I want the best for you. Even though it may not look that way right now, I love you with an everlasting love. And because he loves them, honoring God would be the natural response for them. 
And yet, starting in verse 6, we see that they respond to God's love with a yawn. Boring. And even worse, contempt. They are not treating God with honor, even though he has loved them. Look at verse 6. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, if you call me a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. God uses a metaphor to describe the relationship between him and the people, right? You're calling me father. You're calling me master. These are relationships based on honor, and yet there is no honor here. If you're following on your notes here, the people were giving only lip service to worshiping God. In other words, again, this verse is simply saying, you're saying one thing, that I'm your father, that I'm your Lord, that I'm your master, and you're living a totally different way. What's that called again? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Specifically, God points out, it is you priests who show contempt for my name. Why does he pick in on the priests? Well, the priests were responsible. They were responsible for this whole honoring God thing, right? This whole uh, relationship. Instead of honoring God, though, it says they are showing contempt for him. That word contempt, very interesting in Hebrew. It, it means an ongoing action. It wasn't just like one-time deal. Whoops, I showed contempt for God. This is an ongoing thing that these priests are doing on behalf of the people. They're giving him lip service. Well, they say, how have we shown contempt for your name? And God responds, by offering defiled food on my altar. The altar was the place where sacrifices were made, right? God required in the law that the people were to bring sacrifices on their behalf for the forgiveness of their sin. And these sacrifices were supposed to be, what? The best. The best they had to offer. The best of their flock. And yet, how does God describe them here? Defiled. How have we defiled you, they say. In what way have we offered defiled sacrifices by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible? He expected that you would bring the best you had to his table, and yet they're not. For some reason, God finds the sacrifices contemptible. What could possibly be happening that they're bringing contemptible sacrifices to God? Well, we find out in verse 8. Would you read it out loud with me on your notes? It says, When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Listen, you see what's going on there? God gave very specific instructions in the law of what kind of animal that they were to bring as a sacrifice. They were to be, quote, without blemish, without fault, the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the first fruit of what the people had been given. It's the only possible gift that we could give in exchange, right? And yet, what are they offering him? The worst. Inferior animals. They're offering him blind, lame, sick animals. Talk about evidence of an inauthentic heart. Giving God blind, lame, and sick sacrifices. I love how Malachi, with irony, suggests you wouldn't even do that with your governor. Isn't that true? I mean, if, you're, if the governor of Illinois was coming over to our house, we'd give him the best. Just like these people would. And yet, the governor of the entire universe is being given inferior, blemished offerings. If you're following in hypocrisy, they were offering God less than their best. 
Now, I'm talking a lot about sacrifices. Today, we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. Yay. <laughs> Praise God. Why? Why? Because Jesus Christ was the one-time ultimate sacrifice for our sin. He was without blemish. He was the perfect, spotless lamb of God, and he took my place. He took my place. He took what I deserve. He has borne the penalty of my sin. However, having said that, the New Testament is still clear that we can still bring God sacrifices. Maybe not in the way uh, that we're thinking about here, but there are things we can bring to God. For example, we saw this one last week. I'll just remind you, Romans 12.1 starts this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in other words, in view of the sacrifice God gave you, the gift that he's been given you, what can we do in return? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. If you're falling on your notes, the sacrifice we bring to God today is ourselves. God says, look, you want to honor me? You don't have to bring animal sacrifices anymore. Just bring me yourself. Bring me the best of who you are. Give me your life. Make me your Lord. Don't give me the leftovers. We're going to come back to that at the end here, but back to our text. The reason people are bringing less than their best is why? Why are they bringing these defiled sacrifices? It all comes down to this thing right here, doesn't it? It's all because of what's going on in their heart. It's all about the heart. This whole thing, I hope you see, has way less to do with God demanding some specific perfect sacrifice. He cares about excellence. But the reason I wanted to do these two things together is because he cares much more about authenticity and excellence flows from that. Excellence flows from an authentic heart. And friends, this is always true when it comes to honoring God. If you're following, God always inspects our heart before our gift. He always inspects our heart before our gift. He will look at our heart first, right? Then he'll look and see if what we're bringing him is sincere. If it's real, if it's not fake. A prime example of this is Cain and Abel, you know, the first brothers in Scripture. In Genesis 4, it describes it this way. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. This passage of Scripture has confused a lot of people, made a lot of people angry. What's the deal here? Is it because Cain's sacrifice wasn't excellent? It wasn't good enough for God? No. I don't think it's that difficult to understand this passage. God looked at Cain's heart, and what he saw there he didn't like. It doesn't matter if Cain brought the most excellent sacrifice he could have possibly brought. If he brought it with an inauthentic heart, God is not pleased by that. He could see Cain's heart, and Cain's heart was not in this sacrifice. So what does that mean for us? That means someone could stand up on this stage, friends, on Sunday morning and sing the most incredible solo you've ever heard. We could stand, we could applaud, we could give a standing ovation, right? And yet, if that didn't come from an authentic place in their life, it was not pleasing to God. 
I could preach the greatest sermon I've ever preached. I think I'm in the middle of it right now, right? <laughs> you could just walk away like, oh, man, that was so good, so slick. But if it was coming from a place where I'm trying to press you more than I am trying to honor God, God is not pleased by that. That does not honor our God. I could go on and on, right? I mean, there's other ways. There's other ways, and we're going to talk more about that. If, however, we are bringing God our best, our best, from an authentic place, he is pleased. He is greatly pleased. Verse 9, now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? This is an interesting verse. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Wow. To quote Jeff, wow, right? God would rather have them shut the temple doors than to continue this play acting this pretending, this lip service. These people were practicing empty ritual. And God hated it. He hates it. I believe God could say the same thing to many churches today if we're not careful, right? Shut the doors of your church if all you're doing is coming here pretending. If you're just putting on a big religious show for me, I don't want it. If this is just empty ritual for you, it does not honor me. It would be better for you not to even come than to pretend, to give lip service to me. It is not meaningful to me. If you're following, if our worship is empty ritual, God says, shut the doors. No posing, no play acting. He wants the real deal. He wants our hearts or nothing at all. Verse 11. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Essentially, listen, if you don't want to honor me, other people will. There are plenty of people who will honor me. I don't need your worship. He doesn't need my worship. He doesn't need my preaching. He doesn't need your singing. He doesn't need your offering. If it's not coming from an authentic place, in fact, he would rather that we not bring it. But you profane it, my name, by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands? Literally, it has turned so bad here that the people are bored of worshiping God. That's what it says. What a burden. It's a burden. And literally, in verse 13, did you catch it? What they're doing is they're bringing animals that have been mauled by other animals. Roadkill. Yeah, oh, cool, there's, a, there's an animal here on the road. I'll bring it to God as, as my sacrifice. Can this happen today? Can we get bored with worshiping God? Can coming to church just be a checklist thing? I got it off. I did my spiritual thing for the week. It can happen. It can happen, and when we're doing that, we're not honoring God. Finally, let's read verse 14 out loud on our notes together. It says, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. 
What that verse is describing is exactly what we've been talking about. Someone who says one thing, I'm going to give God the best of the best, and then secretly switches it out with something else, a blemished animal, something less than their best, and that is the height of hypocrisy, right? Saying one thing, but then living a different thing behind the scenes. But I hope you were really impressed by what I said. I hope everybody around me thinks I'm a real spiritual person. Now, we might be able to fool each other, but God is not fooled. In the New Testament, Jesus spoke often about this kind of hypocrisy. In Matthew 15, uh, he said these things. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Therefore, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Empty ritual. Meaningless worship. What about us? Is our worship in vain? Are we just giving God lip service with our lives? I started this morning by asking the question, how do we really honor the Lord? How do we really honor God as a church family? Well, the answer to that question, as we've seen in Malachi 1, is this. If you're on your notes, we honor God by giving him our best from a sincere heart. That's how you honor God. Now, this is true for every area of our lives. I mean, we're in application right now, and I could, I could go any number of directions. I could talk about your profession, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're retired or you're pre- whatever. You can honor God in your profession by bringing him your best from a sincere heart. You can honor God in your relationships by bringing him your best from a sincere heart. I could go on and on, but since this passage was all about corporate worship, why don't we talk about what we're bringing God together? Since this is a series on family values, let's talk about how we honor God when we gather together corporately for worship on Sunday mornings as a church family. How can we honor God by this time, this hour and a 15 minutes that we have together? This past week, I was thinking about what it means for me to give less than what I really could give God in worship. How how do I bring tainted sacrifices into these services? I thought of a few here. First of all, a tainted sacrifice is when I make church an optional thing. If there's something better for me to do that day, church is kind of a 50-50 gamble. I, I bring a tainted sacrifice when I give my career my best energy, my best talent, my best motivation. But when it comes to serving the body of Christ, I sit on the sidelines and I observe. A tainted sacrifice is when we spend a lot of money on ourselves. We'll even go in debt to make sure we're happy. When it comes time for the offering, the question we ask is, well, what do I have left over? A tainted sacrifice is when we watch Yadier Molina or Anthony Rizzo, depending on your loyalties, hit a game-winning home run, and we jump off of that sofa in jubilation. But in worship, we sit passively with our arms crossed because we're not singing the songs I really want to sing. We can bring tainted sacrifices when we stay up till 2 a.m. on Saturday night or Sunday morning at that point. And so we're so tired we can't even give God the best of who we are. A tainted sacrifice is when we habitually show up late for church, even though if you were having dinner with the governor, you'd probably be on time, and yet we're meeting with the ruler of the entire universe together. A tainted sacrifice, personally, I can tell you, is if I just kind of stood up here and winged it. I didn't spend the time in study and prayer that I know that God would want me to spend so that it would come from the overflow of my heart. A tainted sacrifice is if I walk out of this place and live completely differently 
than I do for the hour and 15 minutes I'm here. Now, there's other ways in God's word to me this week. To me, I don't know if it's to you, is Steve, don't bring me your second best. Bring me your best every time you come, whether you're preaching or you're not preaching, whether you're singing or not. Just bring your best to me in corporate worship. He's not asking for perfection. He's not asking me to be perfect. He's not asking you to be perfect. He's just saying, could you bring the best of who you are with an authentic heart to come and worship me, a heart that isn't putting on a mask on Sunday mornings and then living differently the rest of the week? Listen, bottom line, he doesn't want us putting on religious shows. If that's what you think church is about, we're missing it. What he wants is your heart. That's why we make no apologies around here to bring your best every Sunday. Be prepared. Be expectant to enter into God's presence. But understand, bringing your best has to come from here. I'm saying this because I wonder if some of you, like I normally would, are feeling really guilty right now because of some of the examples I gave. I I just got to tell you, I've lived that. I've lived the guilt thing, and guilt is never going to be the right motivation to get this thing changed. It'll never be the right motivation, right? Because I'll always keep feeling guilty. I'll just keep feeling guilty. And you see, bottom line, honoring God has to be a want to, not a have to. And if those examples I gave are all have tos, well, then it's time to do a heart check. When we gather here on Sunday mornings, it's a want to. It's a get to. But the cool thing is, if you're following, when we get our heart right, right worship will follow. I'm telling you, if you get your heart right, you're going to want to. You're going to want to bring them your best. Great example of this is in Luke 21. In Luke 21, Jesus is watching all these people bring their offerings to God in the temple. Interesting just to think of Jesus watching this, right? And some of these people are bringing amazingly excellent gifts. And then all of a sudden, this poor widow comes, and she drops in two copper pennies, which were basically worth nothing. And look at Jesus' response to this gift. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. What's the big deal? Why does a couple of copper pennies please God here? Because they were coming from a sincere heart, and they were the best she had. What about us? Where's your heart for the Lord this morning? Is Sunday morning a have to or a get to? More importantly, if it is a have to, how do you make it a get to? How do you make it a get to? The answer to that question, which I'm glad you asked, by the way, is going back to the context of Malachi chapter 1. How do we make sure when we come on Sunday mornings that it's a get to? Remember the context of Malachi 1? What's the very first thing God told his people? I love you. How much more so? How much more so has he demonstrated that love for us? How can I not want to come and worship him when I think of the love that was poured out for me on Calvary? I wrote 1 John 3.1 on your notes there. Let's like say this like we're joyful about this. Ready? See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God? How can I not? How can I not want to bring him my best from a sincere heart when I think about the love he has shown me? So when I'm driving here at 9.15, late 
running with the kids, arguing with my husband. I just need to take a moment. We just need to take a moment and say, I'm coming to this place to love the one who first loved me. To love the one who loved with an everlasting love. If you're following, worship is our response to God's great love for us. What we do here is all about love. It's about love. So let us not get bored. Let us not get sloppy. Let us not put on masks, but let us honor God as a church family by bringing him our best every time we meet from a sincere heart because that is exactly what he did for us. Amen? So as we close, I'll leave with this question, a question that may be worth pondering this week in your life. Am I honoring God with my best from a sincere heart of worship? Let's pray. Lord, I feel a bit like Malachi this morning. I don't want this to just be some prophetic guilt trip. I want more than anything that uh, we would see as your body, as your church family, the love you have poured out for us, and that the way we can honor you is by giving you that love back, by bringing our best, by being sincere, authentic in worship. It doesn't mean we always have to feel like it or that we have to fake it and bring feelings that we don't necessarily have. It simply means wherever we are that we're here for the right reason, and that is to love you because you have first loved us. Let us be a church that values humility, authenticity, but also let us be a church that brings our best because you deserve it. And everyone agreed and said, we're going to have a chance to sing. Singing is just one way we worship. It's not the only way. And I've just been thinking, for some of you, it would be completely inauthentic to raise your hands and worship or to come forward on the stage. So I would say, don't do that. But if that's an authentic thing for you, if you need to respond to God's love to you, do that. Do that from a heart of praise. Honor him with the best of what you have right now from a sincere heart. Let's sing.